Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky. It is Friday, the what of September? 22nd. The 22nd of September. We're three days away from uh, Media Day. That's Monday. It's very exciting. We'll all get to see the new facility and all that stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some of that later in the show. But we're going to start with uh, the great Lee Jenkins. Um, who actually does insist that we call him the great Lee Jenkins. Oh, yeah. He says that on his byline now. My shirt. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Jenkins says, please don't look him in the eye. Um, so <laughs> He actually insisted that we do this by phone just so we wouldn't make right. eye contact. Oh, wow. Uh, but he, of course, writes for Sports Illustrated, um, and he writes excellent features every, every single, week. Every single it's time. Disgusting. He writes them. Um, I like to think, because you were a year behind me at Vandy, right? You're, you're 99, right? 99, yeah. I'd like to think it was my example that you – we all say you stand on the shoulders of, of giants. And you, you looked at me, who wrote nothing at Vanderbilt, by the way, and said – I saw you at the Kappa Sig house. Right. <laughs> Did we have a Kappa Sig house? Isn't that what you were? I wasn't in a fraternity. Oh, I thought for sure you were. Only you were just doing keg stands. You were that guy. Um, but I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take his example and, and even build on it, um, just as I did with Buster. So, uh, Lee Jenkins, his new story, though, is about Dwight Howard, uh, who is with the Charlotte Hornets now, if, for people who may not know that. It's hard to keep track. Uh, it is. Um, and former Laker and all that, and very, very not loved in Los Angeles. So, <laughs> I, I, but or really it's, around it, the league. Yes. It's, <laughs> I mean, but it's the yeah. transformation of Dwight Howard from arguably the most popular player in the league, certainly the most popular big man in the league, you know, seven years ago, nine years ago, to where we are now is remarkable. Kind of stunning. Did uh, players like him then, though? Like, I know he had a ton of – I mean, he had more endorsements. I wrote this in the story. He had more endorsement deals than LeBron in 08. It's crazy to me. <laughs> like, he had the most all-star votes ever for yes. anyone. 3.1 million votes. He's down to 150,000. I mean, but I'm wondering if players – like, I don't really remember that, you guys. I wasn't covering the league that much. Like, when he got to L.A., I remember there being some anxiety about, like, would this be the right fit for Kobe, given what happened with Shaq, given the personalities. I mean, clearly that should have, you know, been more of a red flag. But I'm, I, I don't really remember if when he was in Orlando, he already kind of provoked these negative feelings amongst his peers or players on other teams that he does now. I don't I don't remember there being a lot of players who actively came out and said, you know, or like the whispers of I don't like that guy or whatever, but what I will yeah. say makes you wonder how popular he was is how little defense he got when things started to go sour. That's right. Um, That's right. there weren't I mean, a lot of guys who stuck amazing. up. No one sticks up for Dwight. I mean no one says anything really nice about Dwight Howard. It's a little like being Spanos. It's like you could kind of say anything you want um, about Dwight Howard. You guys in the league, like I was going back over just criticisms guys have had. I mean, things to his, stuff to his face. I mean, from Kobe, but also from you know, Kevin Durant and its former players. I mean, Gary Payton said he thought he was the most disliked player in the league. Um, you know, and I don't know if that is all because of what happened in LA. I don't know if it's that he couldn't get along with Harden also. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to put your finger on. Clearly he, has struggled to kind of reinvent himself or failed to reinvent himself and develop his craft. I think that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle also. Yeah. And I, I want to get into a lot of that stuff and I know Andy does too, but the, the, the first question I really had was kind of related to that. What made you go back to Dwight 
as a as a story leading into you know in, into training camp. Well, it's just what we're talking about. I mean, it's just such a it's such a dramatic fall. I mean, it's, and it's sometimes I'll sit there and think about guys. You know, when you get to the NBA, usually these twenty four year old players who are good, it's like they're going to be good for a decade. And they don't disappear. They, they stay around our consciousness for so long. It's one thing that I think separates basketball from baseball and football. You're, star, you're a star for a long, long time. And when I saw that trade, when I saw that he'd been traded for Bellinelli and Plumley, it was just sort of another reminder of how quickly he'd fallen, how sharply he'd fallen, and what you were talking about. I mean, most of these guys are kind of protected by their peers. Dwight Howard's the one guy who seems to have you know, very little in terms of public or private support. Um, so I just, you know, you're sort of interested in what's happened here. Like, why did this happen? And what do you think about it? Because, I, you know, all of these guys, there's clearly, there's clearly a deep level. I mean, look at what happened with Durant this week. They clearly care a lot about yeah. public perception and the way they're viewed. And part of me was thinking about Howard, not even in terms of revitalizing his career. I don't know if that's happening. It's living the rest of his life. I mean, he's going to live the rest of his life being Dwight Howard. And, like, what does that mean? What does that look like? How is he going to, you know, be received? I mean, this is a guy who probably was thinking about having some big movie career, entertainment career. You know, is that even possible with the kind of the way his support has waned over the years. Yeah, Lee, how well actually did you know Dwight before doing this piece? And, and if the answer is not well, what's the process of getting Dwight to open up like? Because I, I asked because in our experience covering him, I found Dwight not just closed off, but somebody who didn't want to say anything other than just positive platitudes, just this forced positivity that nobody seemed to buy into, including Dwight. And this piece seemed like indicative of this attempted catharsis, like going on in his life. Right. No. And I. And listen, when you go into something like this, you sort of have some indications. I mean, I, you try to get indications from people around him of, you know, what might happen here. What, what might he be willing to talk about? Where might he be willing to go? Because obviously, we all, you all, we all suspect things about players and. You know, you sort of get a sense before you get on the plane of, you know, of what sort of might, you know, might be at the end of the rainbow. And I had interviewed him, I'd say three times for probably for extensive sit downs for one on ones. And I thought they were all okay. You know, none of them was, it was never great. It's a little bit of what you're saying. I never thought he was bad. I mean, he's always accessible. Um, he's always accommodating. He's fairly engaging. But I agree with you that they, it's not like you really felt you know, like you were getting into the, you know, the second level of, of a, you know, you were getting kind of deeper than, than that surface stuff. And so, and really in my first, I went out to Atlanta and saw him and I interviewed him the first day and it was kind of more of the same. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't feel like I really made great inroads until the second time I sat down with him. I got him again the following day. Um, and, and he was, he was really good. And I think he was, he is at a point now and, you know, it's too bad this has to happen to guys, but sometimes when they are sort of at that rock bottom, you know, not that, I mean, I hate to kind of over-dramatize this because he's still a very successful person, tons of money, still in the NBA, but he is at this point now where there probably is a need for that catharsis, and I definitely got that sense talking to him, and I think part of it, honestly, is is him sort of talking to the next generation and, you know, wanting... I don't know that he thinks of himself necessarily as a cautionary tale, but he clearly believes there are lessons that others can learn from what he's been through. And I think he's at the point of his career where he thinks about those things. Yeah, it's funny because 
you know, the the point of criticism for Dwight so much is that he he cares too much about what people think, and yeah. he he he's only interested in making people like him and all that kind of stuff. And and I'm a little weird in this sense. I've actually always found that to be one of the more endearing and sympathetic it's qualities, human, right? Because yeah. and he says it, and, you, and there's a great great quote in the piece where he says. You know, guys say they don't care. Everyone cares. And I think that's absolutely, you know, in L.A., we're we're steeped in Kobe and all that. And, you know, people will in, in th- that conflict always comes back up and people say, well, Kobe doesn't care uh, whether you like him or not. He cares. That's true. Kobe doesn't care if you like him. He cares he what you think about him. Yeah, he cares in his own way. Right. I mean, nobody would kind of, you know, burnish and, you know, sort of share his story and the terms he does if he didn't. Oh, his whole, there's a whole mythology. There's a whole mythology he's built around making sure you think of him in a very specific way. Well, he also, Kobe managed to, and this is extremely difficult to pull off, and I I don't know how many other athletes, if any, could, he managed to turn unlikability into his marketing. That's right. And that's extremely difficult to do, but it also does give you a certain... I guess shielding against people not liking you that most athletes don't have. That's right. I, I had a great conversation once about this with Shane Battier. It's like how you sort of you can set your public image kind of early. Like Barkley set his public image, for instance, as like you know throwing you know what what was it he threw the guy through the glass or the yes. shopping cart. And so it was almost like from then on that was Charles Barkley's brand or whatever. He could kind of say or do anything, and it fell under that umbrella. Whereas if you look at somebody like Tiger Woods or even LeBron later, like when you go back, the conversation with Battier was revolving around LeBron and post the decision and all of that. And that, you know, if you kind of create your image in that way, it sort of sets you up in a more difficult position because really any misstep is then you know, something that the public will kind of use against, can use against you. So it's something that I think, you know, athletes do probably need to think about more and more is, you know, how you set that initial, you know, your imaging, and I I hate using terms like this, the branding, it, it does kind of, it can kind of help you or hurt you as you go on in your career, given the choices you make. So in, in the story, I mean, there's a, there's a lot, you know, you kind of open with Dwight as a as a teenager, and you know, we all knew when he remember when he came into the league, how much of his persona was built around you know Christianity and his faith, right. and being this incredibly clean cut, you know, uh, you know, altar boy, pious. you know, pious guy, and, and what an amazing luxury that would be at the at, in the NBA, and obviously things have played out in some ways that. You know, belied that you know, with the kids and whatever. I mean, we should point out Dwight Howard has never killed anyone. He's not, you know, he's not sexual assault. Right. I mean, all these other things. He's never really done anything bad. But when, he, and then it kind of builds back, back up into this faith and, and Dwight talking about how he's going, trying to go back to that. Do you think that people will accept? You know, the and what was your impression of of kind of putting faith back out there? In a way that I think, at least to me, was designed to make me once again sympathetic to Dwight, because there's a danger in using something as important and, and powerful to people as religion as kind of your tool to being accepted again by the wider public. That's interesting. I didn't really think about it that way. I think of it, I thought of it more as somebody who was who was kind of desperate, honestly, and was going back to sort of you know what he learned as a child and. 
uh, you know, I mean, this is someone who I think once he had his first kid out of wedlock, you know, he the way he described it is there was just a lot of shame, and it became this sort of vicious cycle where I think in some ways he was like, the hell with it. You know, everything he kind of built his identity on was that he was going to be this evangelical basketball star, and within his world, he was just looked at as a hypocrite, and then he sort of he sort of went another way, you know, he, I think he felt like, well, that's gone. Um, I'll go another way. And his life kind of spun out of control on him. People he trusted, you know, it looks a lot about his story is very typical, right? I mean, it's people you trust, the circle gets big, you know, you lose some money to people who have no business controlling money for you, or at least that's what he claims. You know, it's a guy who'd been completely sheltered and all of a sudden all these women are, you know, thrown at him. And he's tempted, and you know, he, and so he sort of gets into this into this cycle, and he felt like he couldn't or didn't have the wherewithal to dig out of it. So I, you know, I don't know that he's using that he's using faith necessarily to help his public image. I think he's trying to use it as a way to stabilize his life. And I don't, and I don't mean I didn't mean to him. I didn't mean to imply that it's not genuine because I, I I have no reason to doubt that it is or isn't. I wouldn't do that with anybody. It's not. I I, I don't know. Um, I, I'll give I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that it's genuine. I just think there's a danger for someone like Dwight, who is so buried in terms of public opinion, yeah. to publicly huh. go in that direction. Because I, I, then I think people will. I think a lot of people will question whether or not he's just trying to make you like him again by showing himself off as like a a repentant Christian. Yeah, and I, listen, I think he was probably like that all these years also. I mean, I think that, I don't think that, I don't think Christianity really ever completely left his life. I think it was, I think he was in this cycle of temptation and shame. That's sort of the way he he said it to me. And I don't know that this means he's going to be, you know, chaste or a perfect person, you know, or whatever this, whatever it means to be, you know, a, a good Christian. I don't know that, that that it means that he'll even be that moving forward. I think he's... I think he's trying. I think he's trying different stuff out. And that that's sort of something Dwight Howard's always done. You know, you always hear this at this time of year. Oh, I've got new people in my life. I've got a new trainer. I've got a new this and that. So I think people are wary of that anyway, and I think he understands it. Um, but he's, you know, this is sort of his latest attempt. And, shoot, I don't know, maybe it's his last attempt. I mean, if it doesn't work out for him there, you guys know better than I do. I, I don't know what the market would be like for him. He's got two more years on this contract this year and next year, yes. in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, the, what's interesting too, Lee, is you were talking about, uh, you know, or we were talking about how he came into the league uh, at eighteen with the, with this image of Christianity, the, the, and also that was really his life. The piece drove home like how easy it is to forget that Dwight jumped straight from high school to the NBA, and like how these formative years. For him, there was no cushion to find yourself as a young man. Jump from a high school where he was one of right. 16 kids in his graduating like, class. Everything's public. And what's ironic is, at least from the outside looking in, Dwight often seemed more mature, even as like a goofball teenager in his early 20s, than somebody in his late 20s or early 30s. You know, whether that was just a reflection of positive press or early success being popular, he may have been like this lost little kid the whole time, but it was just easier to hide it. Because everybody loved him. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think you just hit it right there at the end. And in a weird way, and like I think his parents did all the right things as far as like you know he grew up in a really tough area. They tried to shelter him. They sent him to this small private school. 
But in a way, I wonder if having a more typical background, like you look at somebody like LeBron, who was, you know, legitimately probably famous by 16 or 17, you know, temptations already coming at him, was not sheltered, kind of a chaotic upbringing. If in some ways he was more prepared for the NBA than someone, I mean, he was essentially like a college basketball player probably when he was a high school basketball player. Whereas Dwight Howard went right from, you know, a very sheltered high school situation into the NBA. And I, and I probably was not the, the slightest bit ready for it. Yep. Although physically he was, and physically, I mean, that's the thing. It's like he was, I mean, while, while all this stuff was going on in Orlando that we're talking about, he was, he was just so dominant. And I think that's, you know, that's what it made me think about is just all these players and, you know, superstars right now and, you know, how much is going, you know, how complicated their lives can get. And look, some guys are able to sort of sequester the off the court from the on the court. I mean, that's what Kobe could do probably better than anybody. Whereas for Dwight Howard, I think, I think he couldn't keep it separate in the end. I think that it got, it got so complicated. I mean, all these legal entanglements with the mothers of his children and the stuff with the friends. And I mean, when he explains kind of what his life looked like, especially in LA, it, it just sounds so burdensome. And in the end, I think he buckled under that as much as Orlando or the back or anything else. And really, he thinks the back is partly due to the stress of all this. It's interesting. Like back in injuries can come, and I didn't write that, but can come from stress. And he felt like he was under just so much strain. And a lot of that was because of his own choices, clearly. Oh, sure. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I remember, and I know Andy remembers, like Dwight's guys. Like there was, there was, there was just this, yeah. there was all this a lot stuff of guys. always around there. The guy whose job it is to carry his toiletry bag. We're not you making know, that up. There, there's a guy, Dwight would walk in and the guy would walk in behind him with the top kit. And, what I, what I, for real, I, this I, is a true but, story. I have the Q-tip. But what I, but what I think is 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 a, is what I remember most from 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 Dwight in L.A. is I think he thought I've never seen somebody completely misread both the team he was on and the market he was in and what it meant to play with Kobe and all that kind of stuff more than Dwight Howard. Um, he came in and he thought I think that playing through the back and she was not supposed to play until christmas and he right. showed up on opening night and i think he was hurt and and it stayed with him and he never understood why and i and i actually I, I tend to agree with him why he was never given credit for that um that he played hurt and really to the to his own um detriment. to his own detriment thank you Andy. i was looking for the word um, because you know he was productive. He, he, I think you pointed out in the piece. He was like seventeen and twelve. He tore his labrum and right. missed like no time. He he, I mean, he missed no time, and he, he never like, got any credit for any of that stuff. And so I, I just I I always sensed this this deep woundedness from him as the season went on, and the and the pylon just kept getting bigger and bigger. Did he talk about that? That yeah. stretch a lot. Like, what did what was what was your reaction to him talking about it? Yeah, no, he. I, I mean, you said it exactly right. I mean, this is, he started searching. I mean, it was like, 
it's amazing to me, and this goes back to the Durant thing this week too, the rabbit ears, you know, on some of these guys, given everything they've accomplished and size. And I mean, he's listening to people, well, why can't you be more like Kobe? So then he's trying to have a Kobe persona. Why can't you be more like Shaq? Like, I'll put on the, the Shaq persona. Somebody that mentioned him. Me yeah. that he wore those. And I wrote this, that he wore the headband and the knee pads like Will Chamberlain. Yes. I didn't think about that at the time. But, I mean, it was just this this constant, like, tweaking of himself and, you know, never being comfortable just being Dwight Howard. And, you know, looking back, I, I, you're right. He didn't really get credit for that. And maybe it's because Kobe always played hurt and played well when he was hurt. Um, and I think a lot of it, though, wasn't even based on his personal performance. It was just that that team was such a disaster. And, you know, it was hard probably to just blame injuries. It's like it had to be something more. And so Dwight Howard was the one who, who caught it. Nash was out, couldn't be Kobe, so it ended up being Dwight Howard. One thing it also... also a weird time, right? I mean, that's yes. right when the NBA oh. was changing. <laughs> Well, it was right when the NBA was changing. Yeah, and this is this is important. That was the year the Heat the Heat put Chris Bosh at center and played small and spaced the floor, and it really was kind of a turning point season. I know people talk about the Suns and stuff, but when I think about why teams play this way and the Warriors, a lot of it to me goes back to that Heat team, that second. You know, it was the second year, um, right? Am I on the right year here? I think it was the second so, year. The year enough. LeBron won his first one, eleven twelve. Is that when it was, or was it twelve thirteen that Howard was here? Uh, he was here th- uh, twelve thirteen, I think. Okay, so it was right after that. He twelve thirteen or eleven title yeah. playing now in the ballpark, and it was, and I think the the league was changing, and he sort of got stuck in it, and I think that. This the way the NBA has changed. I think nobody's been hurt by that probably more than Dwight Howard because it was like if he'd come later, I believe somebody would have turned him into a more dynamic kind of athletic big man. But he didn't. He got caught right as the league changed, and he didn't change with it. Right, and, and certain guys get grandfathered. You know, like Jamal Crawford has been grandfathered into. He he plays like it's still 1996. You know, ISO ball shooting one on one from everywhere. But right. people, so six men can do that a little bit. Six men can do it, but also, do you think the 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 changing of the league is influenced by what we were talking about earlier? People like Jamal Crawford. He's one of the most popular human beings in the NBA for good reason. People yeah. don't like Dwight Howard. So, you know, do you think at all like he would have benefited had he? Had he been more popular and more well-liked, that people would have been more willing to try to figure out ways to accommodate Dwight in a new NBA. I mean, I think he stopped being quite as dominant, and I think mm-hmm. that's a big part of it. It's an interesting point, because um, he does look around the league. I mean, he mentioned Embiid. He mentioned he mentioned a bunch of guys who, who do still play in the post. I think Gobert is one of the people mentioned. So, I mean, he does feel as if he has been sort of unfairly marginalized. And that's the thing. I don't want to make it seem like... I mean, he took a lot of fault. He took a lot of blame. Like in this story, I've never really heard an athlete kind of beat himself up as much as Howard did. But he also feels as if he's been unfairly targeted in numerous uh, numerous occasions as well. And one of them is kind of what you just said. I, I don't know that he views it, or I would view it as it's because he was disliked. Um, but I do think he ended up going, you know, D'Antoni comes in, then he goes to the Rockets, they're playing – you know, they're playing a three-point, pretty fast-paced system, although less so with McHale. Then he goes to Atlanta. They're like five out. I think he feels as if not only was the league changing, but he went 
to the situations where it was changing the most. (laughs) One of the things that actually, or maybe even the biggest thing that I noticed in covering Dwight for that yearly is that for this guy who loves to joke around constantly, you know, do the goofy impressions, tell tell the fart jokes, he has literally no sense of humor about himself whatsoever. It's true. And and I say this not to judge Dwight or, or to pile on him, but I think it's actually an issue that keeps him so uncomfortable in his own skin and in turn, I think, engenders bad will because I think to a lot of players, from a little bit I've heard privately and also just how I think I would interpret it, a lot of it just comes off phony. Like he's just never being real with people. Right, because when he's like that, I mean, it's like I saw him work out. When you talk to him, when you interview him, he's really serious. I mean, he's stern. And then, but when you see him in the world, he is that way. And I can't imagine that it's phony because he's done it for this long, and he does it all the time. I mean, he does it everywhere. Like you'd see him come in the locker room, and he's you know bounding around and singing and a huge smile, and then you talk to him. And the tone completely changes, and he's still like that. Like, I saw him work out, and I didn't even see him, and I could hear him, you know, before he turned the corner, and he's, you know, he's singing, and he's doing all this. And it almost struck me as like, and I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this is naive, but like when you see players come in wearing their headphones, and they'll be like bobbing their head, and it's like the way they fire up or the way they get ready. It almost seems like the way Dwight Howard gets himself ready to go. You know, whether it's publicly, like for some kind of appearance, or whether it's for a game. And, you know, in in a way, I kind of came away feeling like he needs that back in his life. Like, if he's not wearing that, you know, goofy grin, he's in trouble. I think the goofy grin, I don't think, is necessarily the issue. I just, I think if he could learn to laugh at himself a little more, like make himself the butt of a joke. Like, do you remember the movie This is the End? With James Franco yeah. and Seth Rogen, uh, they're all playing themselves. And okay. what makes the movie work really well is all these guys are sending up their public personas, like uh-huh. particularly like James Franco. Like James Franco's heard the you know your <laughs> pretentious art, really arty d bag, you know your closeted whatever. Franco plays it up to the hilt. Like Seth Rogen plays himself as this useless stoner. Like Jonah Hill plays himself as plays himself as condescendingly nice. And, like, Dwight Howard would never do some version of This is the End, where, like, he makes fun of himself. And, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point because it's kind of the currency, the social currency in today's NBA is what you're talking about. It's this self-deprecating kind of humor. It's what, you know, Popovich always says, you've got to get over yourself. It's what they mm-hmm. like in San Antonio. It's what Kerr does. I mean, Kerr's a master at this. Um, and it's part of that warrior's culture is they'll, like, show clips of, guys goofing off or bloopers and you know things that they did wrong in the past and everything so i think that especially now it it is an important quality and you don't really see it you don't really hear it that much with superstars in general so he's not the only one who i think struggles to make fun of himself um but it probably could have helped no doubt about it it's the analog to this story and i mean it's a it's it's a great bit of timing that that the KD story kind of came out right around yeah. the same time as this. What do you make of that? Because that's a, I mean, there's a, Durant is clearly another guy who cares very deeply what you say about him and what people say about him. And he's at, you know, at worst, the second best player in the NBA. So what do you kind of make of this general sensitivity, whether it, you think it's just more KD around the league? Is it sort of a millennial thing? What's your, what's your, what's your view? You know, I think there are just, 
insecurities. I think some of it comes from how guys grow up. A lot of these guys, a lot of guys in this league came from, you know, a lot of chaos, and they're still kind of a searching for validation. You know, I was in Oklahoma City at this time a year ago, and I was talking to people about Westbrook and Durant and kind of comparing them, and, you know, they all were said, you know, Westbrook grew up in, you know, he grew up in a tough area and everything, but he had a, he had a pretty stable environment around him, stable family, friends. He's a validated person. I don't know that he is, you know, he doesn't seek validation from media, from fans or Twitter. And I think some other players, they do. I mean, that's where, you know, when you look at, like, why Durant went there, clearly he felt like that championship was to be the validation. And, I, I mean, I talked to so many people who said, you know, on June 26th or whatever date it's going to be, he's going to wake up and he'll have the championship. And will that be the validation or won't it? And I don't know that we can totally answer that question, but when I see, like, the, what he's done this summer – it makes me wonder if he is wrestling with that, if it hasn't necessarily scratched whatever itch he thought it might, because, you know, clearly he's still on Twitter kind of looking for it. I mean, to me, it's it's crazy. It's like you're Kevin Durant. <laughs> you know, you should be above this. Um, but I don't know. There's something in there's something there that, you know, brings him down to it. I'm not sure. Is the flip side? It's really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, I, I personally think Durant may be realizing just how little criticism he actually received when he was with the Thunder. Like, because for a guy that... I don't even feel like he's receiving that much criticism. I mean, compare this... Maybe it's just because I was in Miami so much, but compare this to what the Heat went through, to what LeBron took. Oh, sure. It but it, nothing. But, but, he, but he had nothing. I, I don't think there had been a superstar who, who dealt with as little Heat as KD in his peak in OKC. Like, you didn't hear the when's the yeah. ring coming. You didn't... Hear about you know, I mean, he he was really light. You know what's funny about that, Andy? He thought he did. I mean, I remember I know. sitting with him in 2013, Mister Unreliable, and the interview kind of went off the rails because he started talking about haters and criticism, and I just looked at him I'm like, "Who are you talking about?" And he was he's like, "Well, people from home, people on social media." People, it, it was just this vague they, right? I mean, it was nothing. It was nothing specific. It was nothing that mattered. And I just remember feeling, um, I just remember feeling at the time, like, well, wh- why is this even bothering you? Like, why is this a factor? Um, and listen, we we can't really fathom, I guess, all of the voices in these guys' ears and all of the pressures that they deal with. Um, but it definitely makes it makes that move last year make a lot more sense. You know, seeing this kind of play out the way it has this season is, you know, when you do hear that chatter about the rings and when are you going to win one, it, you know, it, clearly the clamor got so big, he felt like he had to go where it was nearly a sure thing. Is the flip side of this, though, and you were talking about Westbrook and not necessarily seeking that same validation the exact same way, I think about a year ago, I remember you doing a podcast, I want to say with Zach Lowe, where you were talking about a profile you did on Westbrook. And one of the things I thought you said that was really interesting was that Westbrook... I'm sorry to just laugh. We're Jenkins files. <laughs> we, 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 we follow the whole thing. Um, was that uh, Westbrook... my mom. <laughs> was that Westbrook doesn't necessarily need the ring the same way Durant. And some of these other guys would like that, that you don't picture Westbrook ring chasing in the same way these other guys. And assuming I'm remembering. Yeah, that's right. The ring's not the validation for him. I mean, everybody needs something different. For him, the thirst is for the fight. 
the thirst is for the competition. It's the guys. It's his crew. And that goes back with him all the way. I mean, that goes, you know, back with him to losing her and opportunities to transfer to teams that would be better and, you know, him just, him just sticking with his guys and wanting the fight. And that's, so, I mean, to me, it's like you kind of look back at, you look back at who these people are to kind of help predict what they'll do. I mean, you look, you talk about Durant. I mean, what was it four high schools? I think four high schools, four years. Um, you know, went to Texas, kind of a, you know, an offbeat decision. Who knows what everything that was going on there? I mean, Oklahoma City was really the first sign of stability in right. his life, um, and I think they were banking on that stability being the thing that kept him. Um, when in reality. You know, he was conditioned for, for change, to move. I mean, I think about this with LeBron all the time. It's a similar, it's a similar situation. Whereas Westbrook, there was more stability. There was, it was, it's, it's just a different, it's different. Well, I just, it doesn't think, mean he doesn't have his own, you know. Yeah. I mean, clearly the guy loves to score. He wants the ball. <laughs> I'm not saying there's not, there are things that drive him and, you know, he's seeking his own validation maybe in different ways. Um, but it, he's not, He's not on Twitter caring about what people are saying about him. I mean, the differences in them have have become so stark. And that's why I've always I've always talked about Westbrook as the the superstar that makes the most sense to replace Kobe. Because if you're going to come here, and you know maybe Lonzo grows into this, maybe Ingram grows into this, it helps that they've started here and they're, they're not they, they could grow into superstars. But if you're going to arrive in L.A. as the first post Kobe superstar. You have to have that Kobe quality of not giving a bleep. And Russell Westbrook about, you know, being compared to Kobe and Kobe did it this way and Kobe won by his third, whatever the, it's in there, they're all going to come. And anybody who shows up in an, an arena for, you know, the, uh, a game four of whatever wearing purple capri pants with whales on them does not care what you are say, going to say about him on Twitter. He's going to, he's going to handle that. But Westbrook is the exception. To the rule, and I, I think this is something that that fans well, right, Lonzo's don't understand. Not give a crap, Lonzo doesn't give a crap about that's good. Either. That that's good because you need that. He's in this gonna town. be fine. He's not gonna he's not gonna break on any of that stuff. I mean, you talk to him, and it's like it's like talking to somebody who's not even there. I mean, when you're interviewing him, I mean, he, <laughs> he doesn't. I don't think he cares Let's one get, bit about. Any of it. But that's the exception to the rule, right? I mean, because I mean, I just, I'm not even talking just in the NBA. I'm talking with humanity. Oh, of course. No, I care. Are you kidding? Yeah, we check our mentions. And yeah, we all, I think we all care to some extent. I think it's just surprising when you see somebody who's like the second best basketball player in the world and cares that much. And well, listen, maybe it's what drives them. Maybe it helps them in some way. I don't know. Well, you've spent now time in the last year, you've spent time with LeBron, you've spent time with Paul George, great profile on him over the summer. Again, uh, we're watching, Lee. <laughs> uh, with Westbrook. <laughs> All three of these guys are linked in different ways to the Lakers or you know, just their upcoming decisions. How do you think they're going to go about with their thought process? Like what, like for each yeah, guy, like what? That's different, right? Yeah. What? I don't really understand why. I mean, they have balls. I don't really understand where Westbrook fits with that. I mean, that, that, that's sort of confusing to me. Um, I still think Westbrook stays there for all the reasons we just talked about. Um, I understand he hasn't signed, and that's created a lot of consternation. I certainly had expected him to sign by now. When I was in Oklahoma City in July, there was you know, real optimism that it was pretty imminent. So, I, you know, obviously that gives everybody pause and makes you wonder if he would, you know, if he would entertain leaving. I still think he stays 
I think they're going to be really good. And I actually think they're the team that has the best chance to beat the Warriors. I'm not saying they can beat the Warriors. I think they're going to be really good, too. You know, I think they're the second-best team in the West. I'm always wrong, so that probably means they'll finish (laughs) sixth. But if they... You know, if they are, if they do hit that, like let's say they do get to the conference finals, I think it'll present, you know, it'll put George in sort of a tricky spot. Um, and I think partly this will come down to how Ingram and Ball play. And I know that LeBron specifically is a guy who he's going to watch all these games. You know, he's going to be seeing all this stuff. It's just what he does. I mean, he gets jacked up over like a you know Bucks Hornets game, and he'll go home and who watch doesn't it. so. He'll be, right, so he'll be, you know, I, I think how those guys play will matter. Um, because I know when he left Miami for Cleveland, it's like he had an eye on Cleveland. I mean, he was talking to Tristan Thompson. He was watching Irving. He had a sense for, like, what they had and, you know, if he could make that kind of a leap there. So I think he'll have to, you know, if he were to make the jump to L.A., I think he'd have to probably feel feel the same way. Um, clearly, there are factors at play with L.A. and him and Hollywood and everything else that are sort of beyond me um, that, could, that could loom really large. But I don't really believe George – I think it's going to be a situation where if the Lakers get one, they're going to get two next summer. Like, I don't – I mean, I know they have the slots. I'm not just saying that. I'm saying, like, big stars. Like, I don't know that George comes on his own. I don't know the LeBron comes on his own. I think the the, shot, the chance of a package is is legitimate, and obviously that's that's high risk, high reward. How how ring ready do you think the Lakers need to be for LeBron to come? Because there are conflicting reports that you hear now that yeah, you know, LeBron at this point feels that he's made and he doesn't need to win any more titles. I've heard or, that too, and I kind of know yeah. where that's coming from. I've heard that too. I know where that's coming from. Um, <laughs> It's hard to say. I think they, you know, if the look, if the Warrior, I think a little bit of it depends on the Warriors and how they play. And with LeBron, it's tough to, it's tough to say this far in advance. Like, I kind of had a sense he was going to go back to Cleveland at some point. I didn't know it was going to be that specific summer. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the the decision before when he went Cleveland to Miami, from everything I understand, he was wrestling, you know, a week before. I I, I really think it's early to say this is for sure what he's going to do. I know that there are a lot of people in the NBA who feel as though he is going back to L.A. and and that what you said is right, that it's not just about the championship chase, because clearly if it were, he would want to stay in the East. Um, And, you know, Ball and Ingram are still, I I mean, I think they're going to be great, but they're still so unproven. So maybe it is that those factors, maybe he feels as if the Warriors are just going to dominate the next several seasons and, you know, the championship chase is over. But, man, that would fly in the face of basically every single thing I've heard him say since 2010 when I started interviewing the guy. I mean, he has been so focused on Jordan, so hungry for the ring chase. That's why he took all that wrath and went to Miami in the first place. You know, to me, I look at this whole thing, and I still think San Antonio is a, is a dark horse with him. I've always felt as if, you know, that was one place that may be palatable if he left Pop, there. Because Pop and yeah, LeBron, the Pop and LeBron would be amazing. Just the basketball genius at play there. I would, I would watch that. Well, and you know, I mean, Leonard's. A, I mean, to me, if you really want to win, if you really want to win a championship, I. I I would think the way to do it would be to go get George, try to get George and LeBron to San Antonio together with Kawhi, because that's Ooh. that's a team that I think takes out the Warriors. I mean, they defensively, I think they take out the Warriors, but 
that's hard to do, and it's a you know it's a huge long shot. Um, my buddy Ben Golliver is always touting it, um, but that like as far as the versatility and basketball in 2017, that that's probably the best you can do. How much, if, if at all, do you think? LeBron is consciously effing with all of our heads. Like when it comes to, you know, showing up at these private schools in LA, like he knows how this is going to read or if not, if not effing with our heads, you know, passively aggressively talking to Cleveland. I mean, there's trolling. There's a show to Cleveland. No, look, it's, it's not that different. We talked about with Durant. I mean, Brian Windhorst wrote in his book that LeBron's, you know, would tweet about other things when the Warriors were playing during the year when the Warriors were really good. You know, he also, in an interview, told me that he was up late, you know, up till 4 a.m. watching the Warriors one night. So, yeah, I mean, there's a constant, it really, it really feels as if they're using social media to sort of drive home these points. And yeah, it's, it's hard to read it all, but it definitely, the NBA feels like high school in a lot of ways. And LeBron and KD are like, you know, the battling homecoming kings or queens or whatever it is <laughs> how uh how much do you think is you know, andy and i joke all the time that that rob palinka every time he opens his mouth it's like listening to a ted talk no it's like right, a kobe right. si- it's a kobe yeah. system commercial right yeah. <laughs> which is basically a ted talk um and it's and you know he does he's he actually they're very similar to lavar ball in a lot of ways they're just repeating a narrative over and over and over again in an effort to get it to stick you talk to a lot of people around the league how much has the the attempt by the Lakers to rebrand um, and sort of re reshape the narrative, how effective has that been? I think it's working. I think that all the LeBron chatter has helped it. Um, I think there's yeah there's an energy around them right now. There's a feeling like I think the Paul George chatter helped it a lot too. It's like those years they didn't get those free agents. No one really expected them to get those free agents, did they? I mean there was never any momentum for it and now it's like well, they did i think that's the problem is they did but there weren't these reports that were these reports are sticking i mean there's no doubt that paul george has a, i mean he gravitates toward the lakers and he is a fascination with the lakers i mean there's no doubt about that so does it mean he'll sign there for sure no because i think he wants to be i think he I used to think he wanted to be kind of face of a franchise. I actually think now he wants to be part of, you know, one of these superstar conglomerates. That he, wa- I mean, he's ring hungry too. So, the way you know people are talking about the Lakers right now around the league is with more. It, they're more of a legitimate threat, and there's also you can sense from the small markets there's more resentment of them. You know, before it was there was more of a kind of ridicule. Everybody was sort of delighting in their struggles. I get the sense from the small market teams that there's more fear now um, that the Lakers are ready again, and which is crazy because they haven't really – it's not like you can look at the personnel right now and say, oh, yeah, I could see where there'd be a carrot for LeBron or Paul George. I mean, it really is sort of the return of Laker exceptionalism if those guys would go there based on, what, two years of Brandon Ingram and one of Flonto Ball. That is our birthright. We are in Los Angeles and therefore deserve all of the stars, Lee. But that, and it's, it's weird. It's kind of the way the NBA, and there is so much blowback right now from the small markets, but the way the NBA is going, it's like they've, done all, they've made all these moves, or at least paid a lot of lip service to this idea that it wasn't going to be just the big markets contending. And, and right now, look, I mean, look at the landscape of it. Utah loses Gordon Hayward. Oklahoma City loses Durant. We're in a position where the Sixers are promising, the Celtics clearly promising, and the Lakers are deemed a threat, even though 
they haven't done anything quite yet. Well, I mean, that, that's that's sort of the downside in a lot of ways of the money getting so big is you can walk away from your small market team now. I mean, you're, yeah. when you're going to be stupid rich no matter what, the, the idea that, you know, well, look at what I'm leaving behind if I leave OKC or if I, you know, if I leave Utah or whatever, the answer is not that much. Right. It's, it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to leave 50, 35 million dollars on the table if you're still getting 170. Yeah. Just, you know, that may, it, it, Baseball players you know. don't do it. But yeah, they're shallow. For some reason, it is well. Um, I okay. I, I I know. I have one more thing that I want to run by you. Um, yeah. There has been some question as to whether or not Lavar Ball and Lonzo, whether there's going to be some distraction here. Let me run my one. I don't my one theory about where this could get problematic. And tell me if you agree. Uh, we heard the news this week that they are they already scrapped like the the Zoe one. Now it's the Zoe two remix thing or whatever. So if you order the old shoe, you're getting the new shoe no matter what. And Lavar's statement, by the way, was amazing when he said, "You know, if you if you were going to get a diesel before, and then I told you you could get a Bugatti off the lot, you know, sight unseen, unseen, you'd take the Bugatti." Basically, what he's saying there is, "Yeah, I sold you some crap right. before, but these shoes <laughs> are great. It's an indictment of the old shoe, no question." Right, right. When this thing finally comes out, and I don't know when it is, when it will, I'm not convinced you know, it I'm will. Not, you know, but people, you know, shoe people are going to cut it open. They're going to take it apart. They're going to do all this other stuff. If the shoe is shown not to be very good or there's problematic or there's backlash against it or whatever as a as a product, then I think, LeVar, uh, you could see some problems and some distraction and Lonzo being forced to stick up for the company and all that kind of stuff. Other than that, I actually think he'll be fine. Am I am I on the right track here? I don't think he's good. I don't think he's going to affect the sun. I mean, I, it's. He's such an unusual guy. I spent some time with Lonzo last year, and I just think he's able to separate all this. I, I mean, I think he's a he's an assassin on the court, and I think I don't know if he I don't know if he's fully. I mean, the one question I have, and I remember talking to like scouts about this, is if he's fully kind of digested his dad's influence. Like, does he in private moments does he kind of laugh about it all? Um, does he just sort of remove himself somehow? Because most people around this age, this is when you sort of, you know, you start to come to grips with like your parents, who they were, what their influence was, you know, how you differ from them, how you're similar, how you're similar to them. I don't know that he's had those conversations yet. And it's interesting because usually about this time, like all interview players who have, you know, sort of, you know, parents, especially fathers who are big presences in their lives, and they're able to sort of reflect on it and talk about it. And when you ask Lonzo, which I did last winter, I was with UCLA for a week, and it was before all this stuff went, you know, went haywire. And I asked him about his dad, and he really, he really didn't talk about him in any kind of, or his influence really in any um, memorable way. So, you know, I think he's one of these rare guys who's just going to block, who can block all of that. All of this, all of the nonsense, the marketing, whatever they're doing as far as setting themselves up as, you know, a sort of larger kind of this fame grab they have going. I just think when this guy gets on the floor, he's going to be, he's going to be what they hope he'll be. I mean, he is, because you saw, I just saw it last year at UCLA. I live right by that campus. I went to a lot of those games. He lifts people. I don't know that his game is going to translate to like moving product. I guess if they make themselves so famous, it will. But I think it's going to translate to winning a lot of games. Yeah, it's actually interesting. The ball kid that I worry might be an overstatement, yeah, but I would say going to be yeah, Lamelo. That's going to be like the Hollywood story. Yeah, because he's. I mean, he's essentially right now being groomed as a child celebrity. 
And that can be a really tough path. I mean, yeah, that'll be the, I agree with you. That'll be the cautionary tale. Ball, Lonzo won't be, in my opinion. Well, I guess selfishly for Laker fans, <laughs> that's good enough. That works Great for me. Great news. Excellent uh, news. He's a shooter. He's a scorer. I mean, this guy's may, he's good. It's like guys will love playing with him no matter what nonsense is going on with the shoes or whatever's right. inside of it. Like, they're just going to love, everybody loves playing with this guy. And, and his most, in terms of like avoiding backlash and, and, and keeping a, a strong narrative about how well he's playing. The one his greatest talent is one that doesn't really slump. It's passing. It doesn't every, slump. That's every, exactly right. Every night there's going to be one or two plays that people send out on social media. So all people but will you know see. What? They won't know he's shooting thirty three percent because they're going to see three spectacular passes a night. And they'll be like Lonzo's amazing, and that that will sustain him while he learns the league. And you know what's but you know what's sad actually is. His influence is, it goes so far beyond that. He, it's every loose ball. It's little decisions. It's one defensive play when you feel like they really need it. It's a pass before a pass. It's the way that he kind of gets everybody passing. I mean, if they haven't, I don't know that they're going to have enough shooting this year for you to really kind of see his influence. Um, but just watching UCLA last year, Every time that team needed a play, it's like he made the play. And a lot of times it was stuff that wouldn't have made the highlights, wouldn't have made a box score. Um, I mean, his ability to get loose balls is uncanny. He's he's a winner. I mean, it's funny. Everything about him is so different than um, kind of the way the family's marketed itself. It's just it's kind of an ultimate irony. Whereas LaMelo, you're right, it's more of like a flamboyant style of play. He's a shooter. Um, it just seems like that could be more of a, a troublesome situation. I read there was a third kid somewhere, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I don't think anybody cares. Jello. Yeah. <laughs> he's which he's like which like whatever Jackson you forget was in the Jackson five. Right, right, know? right. Um Tito. Yeah, Tito. Sure. <laughs> Tito's not bad. He's still a Jackson. Still a Jackson. Still gets the check. All right. Uh, it does make me wonder, though, about like when you guys with the free agents, like even LeBron and Westbrook, like they'll have to be okay. And I don't see the Westbrook thing happening, but they'd have to be okay playing off the ball. I mean, you can't take the ball out of this guy's hands. I know he's just a rookie, and you know, maybe it'll be a bust. I don't know. But yeah, LeBron, LeBron I, let I Kyrie have the ball more. You know, LeBron, Kyrie had the highest usage rate on that team. Yeah. But, I mean, if you have Lonzo Ball, don't you want it to be in his hands, like, all the time? I mean, Kyrie probably would have been better off. Well, you could argue better off the ball. But with, with Lonzo, I just – I don't know that you're getting – if you're – I don't know if he's ever going to be what you want him to be if he has to share the ball at all. I, well, maybe. But I see the I see the I see see Lonzo as an attraction for a 34-year-old LeBron to know I don't yeah. have to have the ball in my hands every possession I, what if I we think, want good things What I happen. think is going to be really interesting if, you know, this trifecta of, of Lonzo ends up joined up, you know, with uh, Paul George and LeBron is how Ooh. in a year – we're all, I guess, going to just collectively forget that before he even played a game, Palinka and Magic declared Lonzo the face of the organization. <laughs> because, like, once LeBron's there, I don't think we're going to be hearing that anymore. And I think we're all just going to sort of forget all that happened. I don't think it's yeah, even going to be a problem. I just think it's interesting. Like, it's it's ironic. I'm being called out on that. Yeah. It, I think LeBron's going to – and one thing I've, I've heard before, but, like, I think LeBron could age really well. I think more so than Kobe or the scores. I mean, there's so many different things in different ways he could go. I mean, if he wanted to, if he wanted to play deep in his 30s, you know, he's never necessarily been the kind of guy who needs to lead the team in scoring or you know even needed to be known as the best player on the team. I feel like if he does end up 
you know, playing out of the post more, picking out shooters, you know, using more of the passing ability. Um, you know, I know that contract, that contract would run what? It would be a five-year deal? Well, it, it, would it, run, it would run whatever 30. LeBron wants him to run. Whatever he wanted to yeah. run. But, I, yeah, I just, I don't know, I think he could age better than a, a lot of NBA stars. I don't think there's any question. Just because the skill set is so diverse. All right. Uh, well, we know you've got you're 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 off to uh, to do some Sports Illustrated stuff as the season starts to get going. Uh, where are they sending you this year? Staples Center. Nice. <laughs> I'll see you guys around. Excellent. Best uh, sports writer in the biz, Lee Jenkins. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, appreciate you, the time, man. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Um, thanks for the kind of words and. Yeah, I'll see you down the road. Appreciate Sounds it. Good. All right, that was Lee Jenkins. Uh, we actually we ended up covering a lot of of the stuff that we were theoretically going to talk about ourselves. So um, I guess the only thing Andy that's really left that we didn't talk about Andrew Bogut, the Lakers' last roster spot goes to him, which is a little surprising. I think people didn't think that's where they'd go. Yeah, but. that they'd bring in um, another older guy. And at this point, you know they've got you know, they've got Brooke Lopez. They've particularly got particularly another big. Yeah, I. It'll be interesting to see though where Bogut fits in. You know, first of all, you know how much time he's actually going to get. What this does to Vita Zubats. I mean, th- this to me felt like, at best, a message to Zubats. You know, get your bleep together after playing horrible in summer league. At worst, the Lakers saying what we saw in summer league might actually be what we have in Zubats. Right, and and it's. I don't think it's a shot across the bow. I think they took the ship and rammed his bow with it. You know, like Game of Thrones style or something, like in the high seas. Um, he was terrible in the summer. Yes, he, he was. wasn't just like, oh, you know, Lonzo didn't shoot the ball well, but you saw that he was terrible. And that is something too for second year players. When first year players struggle in summer league, it's expected, and you don't read too much into it. Second year players, that is a little bit alarming because they're supposed to be dominating, particularly if you're a guy like Zubats. Who actually got some legit NBA right. play, and they were concerned about his fitness. And like, yeah. and you know, we all know what a bunch of fat shamers this this new regime is. And so, mm-hmm. I think they they like Julius Randall now looks like Christian Bale in the Machinist. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> like he's like, they all do. I mean, <laughs> everybody has everybody lost. in that organization looks amazing. Like even even Magic. Like the last couple times I've seen Magic, he's looked slimmer. They I mean, all, there was a period where Magic was looking pretty doughy. The, the the I think it's everybody's slimmer now. I've, I've just glanced at the promotions calendar, or whatever. And I forget exactly what it is. I think it's mid November when the uh, the shirtless calendar comes out with all the Lakers in it. Oh yeah, I mean that's basically what's going on here. Like you're not actually allowed to wear a shirt in that no, facility. You're not. You better not because they just walk by with calipers to check your fat. Um, he he will help though. Bogut, I mean, yeah, um, you know, he's he is another passer that they can put in the high post. I, I they think don't the, have a lot of guys, in, who particularly can in this, particularly way. in the second unit. Yeah, I, I think you'll really that passing that passing ability because Bogut is one of the best passing bigs in the league. Yes, I think that passing ability will really help in the second unit that doesn't have a lot of great ball movers. Right, and if you want an offense to operate in the way that they that they want that offense, you have to have guys. And I realize, oh, you want the young guys. That's true, but you also need young guys to operate, and this was a problem in the last couple seasons, you need young guys to operate in a system that is working coherently. 
And that if that takes a veteran who can come in and play for 15 minutes and really move the ball around. Which is all I think he's going to play. I, at the most. He may not fall apart. I was going to say, I don't think he can physically do uh, more. I did. I mean, but he'll help defensively. I mean, he is, he, you know, Golden State was hurt badly when he couldn't play in that series because he actually is still a very good rim protector uh, and a good defender. Um, I don't think he's going to play much more than 15 minutes a nope. night. Uh, you know, Lopez is going to get a lot of burn. And then they're going to go small. I was going to say there is also, though, some concern about Brooke Lopez's back already. Uh, Bill Orem uh, from the OC Register and the whole uh, Southern California media group. Whatever. He writes for a paper. Yeah. Well, I I think he writes for papers. Yes. Um, But he said that there is actually some concern right now about Lopez and his back. So Bogut could be a little bit of insurance. And Bogut could be, you know, if a good trade comes along in December instead of February for Lopez and you feel like, Maybe we'll move him. You, it's be, it'll be nice to have look, another if, veteran if, presence. If, it's if, a no harm, no right? Foul if Zubats, you know, gets his bleep together and starts playing in a way that forces himself to be on the floor, or, or other guys are playing so well that you're going to go small more often, whatever. Bogut is too easily cut to be worried yeah, about him being you, a problem. Trade him, trade, whatever. But I'm just it, saying it, he's too easily gotten rid of. Yeah, it is, it, and he didn't invest a lot in him. So it was an interesting way to go. Uh, he will draw a lot of attention from media because he's a good quote, whether yep. or not you like what he says or not. He is still a good quote. Uh, we always support that. And um, I don't know. So media day Monday, we will uh, we'll have some real, actual things that have happened on the court basketball to talk about really soon, which is exciting. Looking forward to that. All right, we'll see everybody next week.